Give him a minute. All right, excellent. So we'll just we'll, we'll just get into it. There's, you know, I can do a thing later to introduce you, or just while we're talking, people will get to know you. Um, okay. So probably a good place to start is uh, you've you've been like you had a rather intense start of your year with everything that happened on the farm. Can you just kind of just bring us in on there? Like, where's the farm? How close to a rather large source of water is it? And how fucked up did it get in the storms? Okay, so the farm um, is on uh, the Diarubbin, which is another name for the Hawkesbury River. Um, the Hawkesbury River kind of winds from the west to the northern extremities of the metropolitan region of Sydney in Australia. And uh, it was, I guess, traditionally tended to by the custodians of the Darug mob. Um, that is the indigenous area that I am working on. And we are in a suburb called North Richmond. And the farm fronts directly onto the Hawkesbury River. Right. Um, and our, at least until recently, our major productive uh, breadwinning um, area for the farm was maybe five to ten metres from the edge of the river. And essentially, over the course of the last six months, we have had three major, they're calling them one in 100 floods. And essentially, our the better part of our property along the river flats. It's quite a it's an interesting property. I'm happy to talk about it, but we have a big open flat area next to the river, and that was anywhere between ten and fourteen meters underwater three times in the last six months. And where at this point in time. We're sort of quite worried. There is a lot of talk about two major climactic weather systems that are meeting simultaneously right over the eastern coast of Australia sometime within the next three to six weeks. Um, and those two systems are La Nina, which I think most people would be familiar with, and also something called the Indian Dipole. Um, I only just recently, not just recently, but fairly recently found out that monsoon actually means wind um, and it is a wind system that brings rain and every now and then uh, a certain kind of Indian dipole, there are different kinds, there are lower and, and higher dipoles um, and essentially the dipole is making its way through Central Australia right now and it's going to come down through Central Australia, and it's going to converge with uh, La Nina on the eastern seaboard of Australia. And the, uh, I guess, as it stands, we're looking at about 18 metres um, of, of flood. And previous ones have been really threatening, and they have affected a lot of 
mainly industry and agrarian areas. Um, but at 18 meters, we start we start really coming into the danger zone for a lot of residents and houses and and schools and there's a big military air force base um, there are a range of different things right in the local area that would be severely compromised by that level of flooding um, so that's kind of the situation that we're in we've been through three really bad ones and we're looking sort of looking down our noses at, a, at an incredibly serious weather event and it feels serious because a lot of the local farmers and properties in the area have remained essentially in a state of abandonment since the last one which was about five or six weeks ago maybe i might be getting my dates wrong but um within only a couple of moon cycles to now we've seen uh, a really quite a major flood and there are different factors at play but when you drive around the area and this is still within the greater metropolitan region of sydney um we're seeing a lot of almost borderline abandoned farmland and there are lots of farmers who are selling and there are also lots of farmers who are prescient and they realize there's no point in investing into rehabilitating their land and planting their crops if such a major event is to occur i think they're going to wait it out until mid-september or late september and that should coincide hopefully with warmer soil temperatures and it just kind of makes sense it's kind of a lull period anyway in farming but um, you can really see it in the landscape that a lot of people are divesting from the area and a lot of people have been after three floods in six months are really struggling to maintain their own finances and economies and there are for sale signs and you, you, we're seeing a divestment from the the food bowl that that services a lot of sydney yeah right so like in that area a lot of sydney's food is getting produced as well i would say i'm not really sure i'm not privy to yeah. the actual data i'm i am aware through contacts within the industry that a lot of supply chains are way way longer than i would ever have imagined and um there are gigantic uh monoculture um farms and hydroponic farms that are nowhere near sydney that are supplying sydney with a lot of food um but certainly yeah a lot of the farmers markets a lot of the local green grocers a lot of the supermarkets would be sourcing food from that area a lot of the restaurants um cafes uh, they a lot of them interface directly with these farmers and there is definitely a bit of a, a crisis um, it might not be easy to see it on the shelves but definitely within the industry and on the ground um, a lot of the regular supply chains are drying up and we're starting to see issues and, and problems um, coming from our particular area yeah right so like you mentioned that the dipole is kind of currently moving through central australia is mm. it is it dumping a bunch of water or doing anything like that through there like are they seeing a bunch of trouble come in i'm not sure and i as i said it's a wind so i yeah i don't know if it needs to interface with certain climatic conditions and and other low pressure systems or or humidity 
So I don't know if it's necessarily bringing water as much as it, when it does find it, it, it just creates the conditions for really, really heavy rain. Okay, so, all right, so you've had, yeah, you've had those three massive floods. Were you, were you and your farm kind of aware that this ship was going to be coming in when it, when it did? And were you able to do anything to help mitigate some of it? Or is it, is it the kind of thing where you're like, hope it doesn't fuck everything up? Uh, the first couple, we, we had some warning and we, not that we had a sophisticated flood plan, but we kind of, we knew it was coming and it was slower. The, um, the rain came more slowly. Um, and we had the foresight and we were able to act in a reasonable way. Whereas this last one that just came and I can tell you the difference between the floods because they actually had quite a different effect on the ecology and the landscape. But this last one, there was almost no warning. Um, we sort of figured out on a Friday that we needed to act. And on the Sunday, we got the 110 mil of rain in a day and it was all over. So we really had to, we had to move quickly. Um, and we had a long day that Friday. We sort of came in early. We sort of all looked at each other and acknowledged what the situation was. And we started harvesting. We had a, we have a market garden. We had a market garden. We can talk about that. We had a market garden. Everything was thriving. We had a bunch of livestock. We have a nursery. Um, the farm is still in kind of a genesis stage. There's still some essential earthworks and road building going on. So there were a range of machines and rollers and excavators that were also needing to be moved out of that area. Um, and we spent probably five or six hours harvesting absolutely everything that we could. We, any fresh seedlings that had just gone on the ground, we were pulling them all up and putting them back into trays. Um, we were just ripping anything that would be susceptible to the flood. We kind of got it out of the perceived crisis area. Um, we got the animals to another property where they would be safe. And yeah, it just happened. And the difference between the two floods, the first, the first couple, the water came in just heavy rain consistently for a week. And the way that the water drained away, it meant that it was sitting there for a lot longer. And there was a huge deposit of silt, like a thick slurry of silt that was put down. Um, and there wasn't that much debris or trees that were pulled out of the ground. Whereas this one, the water came so quickly and it moved through the landscape so fast. And essentially there were these choke points where the water was draining so quickly and, the, and there was just huge trees. Like I wouldn't be out. I'm, I'm quite a tall person and I wouldn't be able to wrap my arms around them at all. And those trees were stuck sort of several meters off the ground in other trees. Um, we had these huge debris piles and there was no silt. It was like a little bit of sand, um, but you could see that the water was moving a lot, 
a lot faster and like a lot of our irrigation was ripped out and sort of little structures and poorly built fences were all just ripped away and a lot of the local rivers when you drive around you can see just about two feet from the ground just the, the log just snapped um there's a lot of that you can see a lot of very destructive powerful water um, but it had less of a detriment to the land because the water just came up and then left in a really short space of time whereas before we had standing water that was just sort of sitting there for a week and and that had its own separate qualities and erosive powers i would say yeah right did you notice that at, at the like the second kind of flood where it came in quick did that take a bunch of soil with it um not as much no it was really yeah. interesting like we had fresh compost on a lot of our beds and a lot of that was maintained oh. um there was some mulch that was moved around and uh you know we had been using some different like plastic sheeting and uh like frost blankets and protection and a lot of that was ripped away but um it was really interesting it just it's always an apocalyptic scenario but it was a very different atmosphere and it felt a lot less destructive there was just these huge deluge piles um at points that you could see it was draining through these two trees to get back to the river and and there was a huge massive pile like tons and tons of material um but it didn't seem to affect the ground as much and a lot of the plants remained there and and even grew back a lot of them started to grow new new leaves and and started to recover um which we definitely did not see that after the after the major one that was under for a week that was that was a lot more sort of apocalyptic in terms of the the biology and and the survivability of a lot of the of the riparian region near the near the river right because you've got you've got the water sitting there so you're just kind of rotting the plants for a week solid you've just got them sitting in silt and water you kind of you're killing the root and the base of the plant whereas if it's coming in quick and that plant's got relatively decent root system it can kind of it can handle that yeah and the the silt when it settles so we had it was in summer so we had a lot of our summer crops and we had eight foot tall corn and stuff like that um that silt it deposits like on the leaves on the solar panels and um it's really hard to get off it's quite sticky yeah. like murky mud and that really compromises the sort of photosynthesis and and the functionality of the plants um and it it becomes uh, anaerobic very quickly that silt and it it does have benefits and you know it does need to be said that the riparian river flat areas around the world um, are an incredibly dynamic system and these flood events do bring a lot of uh, detritus and debris which is very beneficial in the long term to the soil biome and ecology it, it brings and deposits a lot of nutrient um, it brings and deposits a lot of decaying dead matter which forms the building blocks for new life and that is really critical 
and and it's really easy to admire that side of things um but in the other hand of course this is where a lot of people are farming and that's where huge assets and things are lost so there's a there's a kind of um juxtaposition of emotion there where you are you're witnessing this incredible force of nature and i the the word that i often think of when i've when i've been witnessing these floods is awesome and not in the sense of that's sick or that's really great but it is evoking awe like i am in a state of awe and reverence and i'm watching this incredible thing that it really it's very humbling and it really puts me in 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 my place and i have a, a moment of understanding of how powerless i am in comparison to the forces of nature um and it is really exciting it's like an exciting emotionally uh there's a lot of like obviously adrenaline and there's a door endorphins rushing and it's a really dynamic crazy thing to watch it's kind of like a seeing like a 20 meter tall wave um it's really a force to be reckoned with um but on the other hand yeah i've invested a lot of time a lot of people have invested a lot of time and, and money and energy into into growing food and other industry along the river and um there's you have to weigh it up there's it's really amazing um but it's also really sad to see that level of destruction and and animals that are that are lost and and people's houses and and things like that it, it is really confronting and sad yeah so with the so you've got this big fuck off 18 meter thing of indian dipole la nina combo coming coming down the barrel at you mm. is there anything that that you can do like you've you've kind of got a little bit more of a uh a leeway in knowing when it's coming um mm. are you are you able to prepare or do anything like you know like you mentioned that the say the mulch piles and the compost piles didn't so much get affected is there is it like all right let's fucking let's let's mulch all of the debris that came through on the fast flood and just stack that <laughs> let's just build 18 <laughs> meter tall mulch piles around the river and hope that that like yeah like what do you what do you do um well i think really what we were doing is just sitting sitting tight and we're divesting from the river flat area i'm not sure how the property that i the farm itself is quite a small uh, in terms of primary industry it's only about 20 acres i think um and maybe seven or eight of those are down on the river flat and then there are all of these steep woodland hill areas and gullies that are away from the river and we we are investing a lot more time and energy into those areas and we have some other uh projects and 
and things really exciting uh agroforestry we can talk about um animals we have a whole range of different things the homestead um there are different things that that we can invest our time in and and sort of wait it out until the flood arrives um yeah i don't think there's really anything that we can do but wait and that seems to be what everyone in the area is doing is just waiting um you, you look around you drive around and and it's just just a chaotic apocalyptic landscape from the last flood people haven't really even cleaned up the debris and you can see sheds that have come down and tractors that are sitting dormant and people are just sort of just not moving um, and as I said there's a range of factors it is the middle of winter so it is a lull period in in the agricultural sector but even so you would expect people to be spending the time to clean up um, and it seems like everyone is just just waiting it out okay um all right so you mentioned that you're maybe moving away from the market garden mm. why why is that uh well there's a range of reasons um firstly I would say that the the market garden itself was constructed in um, not the ideal location on in the river flat area. Um, there's a quite a big mountain to the to the west to the north and west. So a lot of the major sun is getting shaded out is shading out the market garden, and in the middle of winter we were seeing. Um, sort of full shade at 12.30 in the afternoon and that would continue until sunset. Um, so there's a range of issues in terms of the placement of the market garden in the context. Um, there's probably some things weren't factored in and considered and I would say that a full-on site analysis and a SWOT analysis and a shade and a frost and a water analysis, all of these things that you probably would do for something of this scale, it's about a one and a half acre market garden. Um, a lot of those things uh, were sort of either ignored or they just just it just didn't happen in that way. So there's there's that side of it. It, it is more than okay for growing in the summer, but in the winter, um, and we are organically certified, um, which introduces a whole range of different issues in terms of maintaining um, all of the certification uh, requirements for the audit um, and a lot of those requirements involve external inputs um, so we had to rely upon different sources for composts and different sources for mulch and different sources for seeds and special organic fertilizers and special organic uh, soil amendments, special organic pest treatments, um, and a lot of those are going up in price very rapidly. And also we're seeing the cost of diesel going up in price. So the delivery is significantly more expensive and the cost of the inputs is rising and they're being sourced from further away. And there's, there's kind of a sense on the ground that we're moving away from best practice to try and keep the organic certification 
And then I guess beyond that, um, without being too apocalyptic, we're seeing some pretty strong indicators of some kind of uh, financial instability um, is already occurring. And there are things that are on the horizon that are worrying, but we're also seeing that the biggest customer client base for organic produce is, at least in our case, um, has been upmarket restaurants and they're already experiencing uh, problems from COVID, but also now there seems to be a divestment from um, going out and eating out and getting dinner elsewhere and the market is falling away and our local community is a really a blue collar community and I feel that organic is synonymous with expensive mm. so there are there are those economic we're not sort of servicing the local community we're servicing a few fancy restaurants that people external to the community come to um, and they're coming less and less because of this sort of financial uncertainty and also it, to run a successful organic um, market garden we're looking at a huge range of biodiversity and a huge range of biodiversity means that we need to have different management techniques for every one of our 60 or 70 beds and um, it becomes very labor intensive and very difficult to maintain all the crops to the standard that we would like and also to keep all of the clientele happy and then on top of that it's in the it's in the flood zone and and we keep getting threats of more and more flooding um, so it's a really difficult call it, 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 it was really difficult and there's a quote that comes to mind which is like you need to be prepared to walk away from your mistakes even if you've spent a long time making them um, so we put a lot of investment into it we put a lot of emotion there's been a lot of money there's a lot of money that went into irrigation and the resources and the tractors and and everything that we've been doing um, and that's not necessarily the best reason to continue in that game, especially considering that the land is kind of moving us in a different direction. And we can either fight, fight the land and fight these forces of nature, or we can move with it. And that is kind of inspiring a new paradigm in our particular context. Uh, and that's really exciting. Um, and more broadly, this is just a personal opinion and I'm sure I'm, I'll upset a lot of people here, but the, for me, the, the stark reality is of our food system is that we have become incredibly comfortable and dependent upon annual vegetables for a lot of our nutrition. And ecologically that is not necessarily of benefit in the long run um, because we have to keep, when we harvest an annual vegetable, those annual vegetables serve an ecological niche and that is they respond to drastic um, disturbance, to, to successional events where after a flood comes through or a fire, the tomato is an incredibly amazing 
uh, soil repatriator. It, it, it responds to poor soils and it creates the conditions that are necessary for those soils to evolve into a more perennial woodland or grassland system. And in order to maintain our diet of annuals, we have to continually keep the soil complexity at a level that will allow those annual crops to really flourish. And that level is poor soils. Right, so, we have to like maintain catastrophic environments in order for the annual to, to grow. That's, that's right. I mean, the land is wanting to complexify. And as soon as it complexifies, as soon as the soil biology increases, then those annual crops ecologically will start naturally moving away from that area because their service, their ecological niche has been performed. So in order for them to thrive, they need to be in uh, sort of a poorer soil quality that is not suitable to the perennial, the tree species, the perennial grass species. Um, so there's this, it's kind of a stalemate that we've reached. And unfortunately, the trends are real. And if we remove 1% every year, it's only going to take 100 years for for that for that area to become sort of very vulnerable to desertification or there's uh there's not a lot of foresight in what we're actually doing we don't have the relationship we don't we're not aware of the ecological detriment of a lot of these annuals and what they're what they actually facilitate what they actually do in the ecology is not really questioned it's more that we like eating them and like a really good example is grain crops um, sugarcane particularly needs really poor soils and in many cases farmers are subsidized to just drastically ruin their soil and then grow sugarcane um, and a lot of other grain crops are really easy to grow in comparison um, but a hundred years ago a lot of our recipes a lot of our cookbooks especially coming out of germany and france and other countries in western europe they're filled with chestnut flour recipes um so there are i feel like it's it's not an overnight thing but there is some need to slowly start pivoting towards more perennial sources of food that come from stabilized resilient ecologies that don't require the same level of disturbance to the soil to maintain their vitality and, and how virile they are. Um, so that's, I feel like it's quite a controversial thing to say um, because everyone loves their lettuces and their tomatoes and their zucchinis and, and all of those things that we've come to uh, sort of rely upon in our diets, but it's not necessarily the best thing for the land to continuously farm those things. And over time, we're gonna start seeing a deterioration of soil and, and we're gonna start seeing salinity and other things rise in response to that. It's kind of like uh, a scab that we keep picking. Mm. We don't let it heal. We just keep picking it and planting the healing. Like we keep, we keep picking it and then planting the thing that will heal it. And eventually it will just turn into a scar. Like it's not, it's not gonna to return to a healthy skin or a, a healthy soil yeah yeah it's interesting i wrote a I wrote a thing 
a little while ago, I was kind of writing like a longer piece about a sustainable food production system. And like I, <clears throat> I wrote out all the things and like, oh, you know, this is the issue with organics and this is, you know, regenerative and, you know, if we can blah, 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 if we're going to do it large, it's going to look like this. And then I kind of got a little bit jaded with the situation overall and I was like, no, nah, fuck you. Like, it's it's actually your food preferences that are going to, like, we we decimate our, our, like, I'm a landscaper. People pay me to come in and remove lettuces and edible things from their garden and then they go and spend $12 a head on lettuce at the supermarket. And I'm like, this is this is the thing. Like, like there's one joint I work, it, the gardens is filled with sorrel, just like delicious lemony sorrel. It's just mm. all over the place. Like when I go and do the weeding, I'm like, sweet, this is now my salad mix for the next week, you know? Mm. It's kind of, you know, we've got, and like those are, those are, annual things they they'll they'll come up through winter and then they kind of won't won't be there through through spring but um you know that 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 emphasis on on the on the things we've gotten used to and kind of regardless of the effects that they have on the overall system and regardless of what we have to sacrifice in order to maintain them we're just like no no this is what i'm used to I, let's just let's just keep this keep this thing going mm. um you know i'm more than happy to just to eat my shitty shitty coals and safeway tomatoes and just yeah and just know that it's totally decimating the place whereas yeah you know like there are chestnuts and acorns like if i'd have known like growing up, we had a whole bunch of acorn trees around around our school. We used to collect the acorns as like currency, you know, and we'd just essentially just accumulate them. We didn't ever really trade them. We'd just be like, I have more acorns than you. But no one ever told us that you could eat them. Like we'd have yeah. definitely been like, let's make like acorn cakes or, you know, let's make breads or anything. But mm. it took until doing the permaculture course essentially like three years ago two years ago where i was like wait they're fucking edible and not only are they edible but they've they've been a staple because you know you have what like six to ten years to establish a decent nut tree and then you have 200 plus years of food every year you get an abundance of fucking food fall off that fall off that tree and yeah it's interesting that we we emphasized annual species for so long and yeah even now it's kind of that thing of the slow food of that which is it's going to take a little bit longer to establish but from then on you've got a much more resilient supply of food and it's probably better for us it's it would be more highly nutritious it'd be a com it'd be a more complex mix of enzymes and phytonutrients and things like that because the plant has time to establish those soil relationships mm. yeah and i mean that is a really good way to pivot into agroforestry which essentially 
at its core is setting up an incredibly biodiverse community of species that are growing in a very close uh, cohort or consortium and they are in constant engagement in relationships of mutual reciprocity they're entirely symbiotic all of the all of their needs are provided within the system that they live in and it mirrors stable perennial ecosystems and the benefits really do come from the biodiversity because all of those plants are fulfilling very niche uh, roles and then trading surplus and you can taste it you can taste the difference with that level of of uh, ecology um, you can really you can feel it walking through the area is very different to walking in a straight line along a row of, of lettuces or tomatoes mm. where you can see it you can see that there's there's no biodiversity there's no way for them to engage with anything else but lettuce and i often i often think about the sort of the village the the country town and like a country town that just has hairdressers like 12 hairdressers as all the residents there's just not enough uh there's not enough resilience in that kind of system um, and that's how we farm. We just sort of, we keep all of the hairdressers in a line and they're just sort of trading scissors and that it works to an extent, but it doesn't like it, it's survivable, but it's not thrivable. Um, so it's really interesting to kind of be on the ground and, and to look at the juxtaposition between our market garden, which was a predominantly an annual based system. And then just over the hill, we have our agroforestry section, um, which admittedly has been a bit neglected because we have to spend so much time maintaining the market garden. Um, but there's a there's a difference, um, and you can see you can see it. And, and the more I get exposed to agroforestry, the more that I'm seeing just how potent those relationships are and, and what they can offer. And you really like you see no pests for instance mm. there's a level of homeostasis um, we can talk about what attracts pests um, but there's a level of homeostasis which means that there are all of the defense mechanisms and immunity within the system that pests don't take over and become a plague proportion and that isn't really the case there's not the same defense systems that are embedded within annual uh, monocultures and market gardens they 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 don't have the resilience and the resistance interesting the agroforestry does that does that meet organic standards yeah definitely and um well essentially depending on how you do it there are there are different schools of thought and and different sort of people are breaking up into different areas and different techniques. Um, but when you go to just a forest, when you walk in the bush, there's no one that's coming to fertilize the bush and there's no one who's bringing compost in and there's no one that's watering the trees. Like all of the 
requirements to sustain and maintain life and create those relationships is embedded intimately within the system. And that is a, a pretty core principle within agroforestry. Um, if you if you are doing it correctly, correctly in inverted commas, but if you are doing it, you would be growing a lot of the support species that would then inform the fertilizing and mulch through their pruning. So you're growing things that are rich in in nitrogen and calcium and and argon and all of the materials, magnesiums and everything, potassium, and then you are just pruning it and feeding it directly into the system and you are imitating the way that forests work which is uh, plants grow there are pioneer species you have your legumes and your other things they grow to a certain height they grow to a certain age and then they naturally succumb to senescence or they start to go into their kind of death throes and then they fall down and they hit the ground and then they are immediately recycled and all their nutrients is put back into the system and, and we kind of just follow a very similar way. It's a very ecologically driven uh, paradigm of farming. Right, so you're kind of, you're just slightly speeding up the process. Yeah, dramatically. I mean, supposedly, and I don't know if, if modern forms of agro agroforestry um, have really existed, there's been a lot of um, subsistence. There's been a lot of, and I'm really inspired. Like I get really inspired by the concept that we all, each of us have uh, some form of indigenous ancestor that was entirely intimately connected to a perennial ecosystem of some kind, whether it was a woodland or a grassland. And they sourced all of their, they sourced absolutely everything for their for their living was all sourced from within that perennial system. Um, and I'd love to talk about that. And I don't know to what extent they were causing the disturbances that were needed. Um, but in a modern form of of agroforestry, the 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 rule of thumb is that you can it it would take. If it took a hundred years for nature to do it on its own, you can probably speed up that process to 10 years. So it's about 10 times faster. If you are incredibly in tune with your ecology, yeah. um, you could repatriate an area to become a forest within within a 10 year period. That would be as complex as a hundred year forest that occurred naturally. Right, okay. And so that's like through like chop and drop, like pruning, mulching, yeah. And uh, are you doing like polyculture kind of thing? Like you're like introducing animals to the area, or are you like letting animals do their thing anyway? And 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 maybe not necessarily introducing them, but just not deterring them, like you would with an annual system. Uh, it really depends, I think, um, on your mindset, but. A lot of people are just naturally inclined to remove animals and there's less of a notion that animals are essential to ecosystems. Like that seems to be a fairly prevailing thing and that animals are going to slow down the proliferation of complexity within your system. Yeah. Uh, but animals play a fairly pivotal role. And it, it really all it comes down to is disturbance. And 
whether it's a fire or a flood or something less severe, like a big storm or um, a strong wind, um, a lot of trees. And it's really interesting to consider the eucalypt um, in our landscape because we look at eucalypts that have all the dead limbs and dead leaves and we're like, that's what a eucalypt looks like. But in the reality is, is that it's it's yearning for disturbance and we're not providing the disturbance that the traditional custodians would have been providing that tree. And that disturbance, when it happens, it forces a lot of that dead matter to fall to the ground and to be cycled back in immediately. And when you prune a plant or when you create the disturbance, there's a hormonal exchange, there's a response within that plant and it incites something called a growth pulse. And the growth pulse is hormonally distributed throughout the entire mycology of the macroorganism, which is a term I can describe, but essentially the growth pulse, it says, oh my God, there's been a disturbance. This is the time that we need to grow. We need to start moving. We need to put energy into growth because there's been a disturbance and that happens frequently or infrequently in the natural world but we can kind of synthesize those disturbances which causes a growth pulse and the growth pulse causes plants to create more solar panels more leaves and then we prune those leaves and we feed them into the ground and that creates a disturbance which creates a growth pulse so they grow more leaves and they grow more mulch and eventually you get this sort of feedback loop where you're pruning, you're synthesizing disturbance that would occur every four months or eight months or one year in the natural system. You can do that through the growing season every two or three months and it produces this amazing feedback loop where there's growth pulses which inspire extra biomass and the biomass is fed into the ground which provides more nutrients to the soil biome and the more nutrients that, that occurs the better it is able to respond to that disturbance and the growth pulse becomes a bigger event and more biomass is produced and then you prune it and you put it down and it just proliferates and proliferates and proliferates until you have this surge of life and that that's really that's where the word syntropy our system is a syntropic agroforest and syntropy stands as the opposite to entropy in that it's life that begets life that creates life that creates life and you're using the life you're using the life pruning it to create dead decaying matter which is then voraciously consumed by the system to create more life because there's this constant cycle of of pulsing you're constantly pulsing the system and it's constantly responding and and proliferating right so like yeah so i i love the idea of syntropy i think it's fucking it's excellent and i think like particularly in our nihilistic overly depressed society where everyone's kind of a bit cynical and shitty at the world we've got the, we've got this notion of entropy which is like mm. an isolated system tends toward decay or chaos um and we're kind of most most people kind of tout that as like oh this is just 
this is how things go things fall apart you know you get old you fall apart yeah the universe is tending toward heat death it's all heading to the end it's all entropic and kind of it's that there's not a lot like I, I i hadn't heard of syntropy until maybe like a year ago and then mm. i was like huh that's phenomenal like that's mm. and that's exactly what the more regenerative side of agriculture or ecology or whatever it is but even just any system that circulates the energy produced back into the like like syntropy is sustainability but without all of the propaganda weight that's made sustainability a useless word mm. it's kind of like this is the principle of sustainability it's like you circulate it back in so that you're working with life it's just it's just life it's life feeding life and it's it's doing it together. You're not isolating these things out so that then they're not feeding themselves and not feeding each other. That's when things tend to fall apart. That's mm -hmm. when cultures fall apart, when they stop feeding one another. It's that's, you know, like you can see it on the larger, on the, on the macro economic, political, social scales, as things start to atomize and isolate, they really tend to fall apart. Whereas, tight-knit communities you know like take the amish for example just the this like they are an isolate within the broader american landscape but they've just sewn themselves in and just done exactly the same thing just recycling just recirculating this energy back in just like mm. yeah just don't leak your energy into unnecessary technology go and see the world but realize that ah, we're kind of probably doing it a little bit better just like slow development but just consistently circulating it back in and they're able to be here still and they haven't they haven't been fucked up whenever something goes wrong they're fine they're like yeah mm -hmm. we've got stores of food we've we've typically got some of the most successful businesses in the area and we have forever the, the whole 400 years or whatever that they've been there they're just consistently good they they mm -hmm. they know what they're fucking doing and it's this this syntropic principle i fucking love it i think i think <laughs> it's amazing i think in terms of like uh re-engendering a bit of um, a beauty and inspiration into the world at the moment is to emphasize this syntropic this mm -hmm. syntropic principle is to be like no no things will feed themselves like feed your neighbor you will then engender further neighboring in mm. the area you know you'll like give love and love is then it's being fed it it, it, it builds out it billows out you know um and like in this in this context of an agroforestry system um I imagine that there are some agroforestry systems that are not syntropic. Mm. They're kind of, you know, you're still doing the monoculture thing. You've just got a perennial system that you're doing it with. So are, the, are these syntropic agroforestry systems, are they inspired by the, the that 
um, European Dutch guy that moved to Brazil and started doing his thing. Yeah, Ernst Gosch. Um, I I actually don't know that much about him. I know that he was a botanist. I know that he moved into incredibly marginalized land in Brazil. Yeah. Um, I knew that he couldn't. Uh, he really couldn't afford to to import anything. So he just he was there with what he had on the ground, and um, there was a lot of experimentation and a lot of very bizarre um, guilds of plants that he put together, and he tried all of these different things, and he had no way of externalizing any of the inputs. Um, so to me, that's the really beautiful distinction to talk about the market garden, that system is not providing enough nutrients to support the soil biota that's there. So you have to externalize the inputs. You have to bring them in elsewhere. Maybe you can generate it from other areas on your property. Maybe you could be mulching woodlands or maybe people can deliver their food waste and scraps. But in order to generate enough compost and enough fertile material for even just an acre of market garden is really quite challenging and we're not conforming to the laws of thermodynamics in that sense we have we've created this linear line of extraction and then extracting to extract to extract and there's not we're not sort of we're not maintaining accountability and the land is not providing for itself, but within these perennial agroforestry systems, everything is maintained. There's no externalized, there's no notion um, of bringing things. And I feel like that's was a big part of Ernst Gosch's mentality was to be able to create with what the land was offering. And it was really marginalized. It was that land, the horrible stories you hear about how they clear it and then they grow soybean for two years and then cattle and then eventually it just becomes completely destitute, impoverished land. And that was the kind of space that he was working in. Um, he was working in the tropics, which definitely helps um, the growing season much different. Um, but the principles that he came up with are applicable everywhere because they essentially, all you really need is a place that can maintain a tree. If you can maintain a tree, then you can incorporate and embody his philosophy and his principles. Um, and a, a big part of that is being in communion with your land and working with what it can provide. And in many ways, that means working with um, weed, weed species. It means um, using things like lantana and castor and privet and stuff that is incredibly virile and grows incredibly quickly and produces huge amounts of biomass and we have a tendency to demonize certain things because they get in the way um, but really they're incredibly enthusiastic volunteers who are ready to to help regenerate land and they want to be there and they and they like to be beaten up and pruned and they're quite uh sadistic in their own uh treatment um and they 
it means that you can really quickly regenerate landscapes. Um, so there's a whole range of different philosophies that are, that are there, and a lot of them are standing in stark contrast to the prevailing sort of paradigm of conventional agriculture. Um, so you definitely, as soon as you start dwelling and delving into this area, you get a lot of very strange looks and expressions, and there's a lot of preconceived notions which are very hard to to kind of to penetrate and to remove. Yeah, right. Just specifically with Castor, what are you doing with that other than I imagine you don't want it to go to seed? Um, well, I mean, we we use Castor um, as a as a pioneering primary successional species within our agroforestry system, and it does provide the perfect nursery space for other trees to come up. It provides a really nice amount of dappled light. Um, which gives plenty to the to the enthusiastic young seedlings that are underneath, and we can remove it with seed. Um, I I personally feel like seed in general is not we're not empowering seed, and we're not we're not in a relationship with just how wise and able seed is at entering a biome and forming a relationship with that biome and studying it to see whether it is needed or not. So essentially when a seed hits the soil, it is immediately engaged in a haptic feedback system where it's analyzing what the temperature is, how much water there is, what the the local biome is offering, what other species are around it, what nutrients are available. And if it feels like its ecological niche is required, then it will germinate. So eventually in these agroforestry systems, you can throw all the castor you want into the system and the seed itself will conduct its analysis it will do its survey and it will go, this system is now far more complex and is, has far more nutrients. It has a much more sophisticated microbiome. <clears throat> it has a much greater ratio of fungi to bacteria. My place in this space is no longer required and the seed just won't germinate, mm. essentially. So we're not too worried about weed seeds getting into the system if they do germinate it means that we're still it means at, they can't still need it we're still at the genesis stage and eventually over time they'll just start to move out because their ecological niche is no longer required and it's easy to anthropomorphize them in a, to a degree in our as a way of understanding but essentially they self-sacrifice um and it's not like a, a suicide as much as it is my my role here is done and I'm better serviced. I will be of better service as nutrients for this system. So I am going to I'm going to allow myself to fall to the floor 
and my my essence will be taken up and and put back into proliferating more life um and that's i feel like that's a really big issue in terms of our connection to a lot of ecology where we demonize weed species we the thistle is so thorny fuck the thistle i need to cut it out but there's another paradigm there where the thistle is actually really important in amending that area and it's 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 kind of saying leave me alone like please don't touch me i am doing a really important job don't mm. remove me i've grown these thorns so that you just just stay away until okay. my job is done um and that goes for all kinds of things like we get really upset at, at work we have um a plant called cestrum which is a very invasive um, and toxic weed and it's especially poisonous to a lot of livestock um, and it's growing in a lot of areas that have been overworked by livestock and all the farmers we you know you've got to go through you've got to rip it out you've got to cut it at the base you've got to paint it you've got to poison it right. um, but there's an there's an alternative perspective where that land has been so badly damaged by livestock that that plant is growing as a defense and also it is probably performing some vital function to prevent the erosion that has been has been occurring on the land because of the livestock and it's poisonous to livestock so that the livestock don't go into the land because they'll quickly learn if they eat it then they'll die but we have this sort of distorted view where the livestock is our capital and we need to protect it at all costs and you know whatever cost that happens to be to the land our livelihood is more important than the livelihood of the land so we create these narratives and and we create these sort of viewpoints of these plants are personally attacking our livelihoods and it's it's just indicative of our detachment to the ecologies that are existing around us it's indicative of that dandelion that's growing in the crack in the cement. It's trying to it's trying to re-engage the ecology of the area and we poison it and rip it out um, and we we demonize it, but it's actually performing a function and a role and it is allowing for complexification to occur and for that that sequence of events to lead back to the forest system to occur um and it's really interesting how distorted our relationship is with these plants and 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 what the flow and effects are of removing weeds over and over again um where we're just deteriorating the land over and over again every time we remove a weed it's at the cost of the land's ability to be able to regenerate itself and we, you know, we, we we spend a lot of money and effort, you know, like Melbourne water or I imagine there's a Sydney water or like, you know, parks or whoever, you know, the, the kind of standard conservation efforts where so much money and energy and resources are spent battling these weeds and things. Mm. And it's like, you're, like you're not you're not going to win. There's no, no, the only thing, the only way that you win is by 
like irradiating this land and making sure that nothing grows or paving it in cement and then you're like done now we won't have any more weeds Mm. because we've killed the fucking area but it's interesting there's a guy in um new south wales and i can't remember the name of the bush but there's like a this like prickly weed bush that comes up and like all of the farmers fucking hate it Mm. and it gets it gets massive and covers huge areas and this guy he was just you know he he had zero budget to tend to the land like similar to earth's gosh he's just like well what can we do here and he realized it's a perfect cover for planting trees in Mm. so he would like kind of you know crack crack in there and plant his tree and then once the tree's grown it'd shade out this spiky bush and kill it off mm. it then it then was no longer needed it was providing necessary coverage and it was providing homes for birds that didn't have the trees there so kind of once the canopy returned then the trees were you know back in the canopy and those spiky bushes that everybody fucking hated were were gone and it's kind of like if you can actually let these things do what they have to do they will leave but if you continually fight them mm. then they 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 eventually become you know uh, uh pesticide resistant anyway and they then they'd start to like storm through your property like fuck you we've been trying to help and all you keep doing is poisoning us and cutting us out of the at the ground we're just we're trying to fix up your fuck up and here mm. you go keep keep you know you keep messing with us it, yeah it's interesting just just like in 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 so many areas we've like by you know by being afraid to anthropomorphize the land we've we've reduced its capacity to talk to us mm we we can no longer hear it saying very like it's it's rather obvious once someone introduces it to you you're like well that thing's always turning up in that same spot and you keep removing it what if you left it alone see what happens see if maybe eventually it will disappear because it's done its fucking job mm-hmm. and kind of having having a relatively straightforward conversation with the land with the plants that are there it it doesn't i don't i don't think it takes long before you're like well let's just let's just see like is it really causing so much trouble to have some dandelions growing on your on your property yeah as well you're right there's there's a massive opportunity for communication and like really common one is there's acacia growing on the side of every road and the amount of effort that's put into removing the acacia, Mm. like it's having a communication. It's, it's conversing with us. I'm needed here. Like there is not enough nitrogen and other trace elements in this area and we keep removing it, but we don't, we're not addressing the reason why it, became there in the first place like when we're not we're not looking at things in a holistic in a holistic manner mm-hmm. and we're not 
able to see the wisdom of nature and and also just as an aside just who knows how long it's been going on on earth at least maybe six billion years these processes have been occurring and there's this kind of idea that we uh human intelligence is more sophisticated than a force that has been occurring for that long um there's a level of arrogance and a level of disconnect and also a level of fear um there we have a fear of the unknown and there's a fear of what we don't understand and there's a fear of of things that are speaking languages that we no longer speak or refuse to learn and um and there's also a fear of complexity um we seem to worship at this altar of simplicity and everything is simplified for our own understanding and that has led to a fairly deleterious relationship with the land because we will only accept it if we have some level of understanding and there's like an underlying fear of of the unknown underneath and everything else that is not what we understand all of those weeds we don't understand what they're doing we need to remove them we need to simplify we need to simplify the landscape um and the alternative paradigm and this is embodied within agroforestry is the systems engineering approach to science rather than the reductionistic approach or rather than conforming to the etymology of the word science which i believe stems from a similar uh etymological um, origin as scissors or scythe and it means to cut into small pieces so that we can understand and we can see in a lot of cases now that in many fields of science we're moving into a systems engineering approach which is taking a more holistic understanding and awareness and within that space we need to kind of allow ourselves the vulnerability to say the full complexity, the, the scale of the complexity of this system is beyond my comprehension. And I need to sort of partner or manage the complexity in a way where I'm not interfering with it and, and just removing levels of the complexity for my own benefit. Um, you move into this alternative realm where you accept the complexity, you accept the fear of the unknown, and you kind of need to move with it um, and we're seeing that 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 change in approach is leading to syntropy is leading to abundance returning to a lot of areas um, and it it doesn't allow for words like weed anymore or pest um, and going back to to pests attacking certain species a lot of that has to do with the bricks of that plant, which is the sugar content in the leaves. And if the sugar content in, in the leaf gets down to a really low amount, that is indicative that that plant is struggling to photosynthesize to the point where it's creating enough sugar to make it virile. And within the agroforestry setting, within that systems engineering setting, we stop looking at the plants as individuals and we embody a new paradigm where we look at it as a macro organism. The entire forest is one organism 
and all of the different entities that exist in there are cells or organs that are yeah. that are performing together. And when certain um, plants start to, when the situation, when the contact starts to compromise their ability to photosynthesize, then there's a wider white blood cell system. There's an immune system response, which is the pests. And the pests, they come and they start eating the plants that are not performing, but they're just, they're just attacking the things that no longer need to be there or aren't benefiting the health of the entire macroorganism. Whereas coming from a traditional horticulturalist approach, we get really paranoid and worried when pests start consuming our plants and we start doing all these things to delete the pests without a, a, photo, a more macro top-down view of, of why they're actually there and what they're doing and, and their importance. Um, and, and this goes into so many areas. Like there are so many areas where this becomes prominent. Like, a lot of people are going to hate me when I say this, but I really admire the termite. We we so we're so angry and we demonize the termites so much, but they play an ecological niche. And in a forest system, when a tree becomes senescent and dies, it falls and it hits another tree, but it doesn't get to the floor where it's where it needs to be cycled, where its nutrients need to be cycled into the soil. And the termite goes, beauty, this is my ecological niche amazing i'm going to come and i'm going to start breaking that tree down so that it will drop to the ground and then the soil can take that nutrients and it can make more life this is really exciting this is where i'm meant to be and then we cut down trees and we suspend them above the ground where they're away from the soil biome and the termite is like amazing this is my ecological niche i need to come in here <laughs> and i need to break down this matter because it needs to be fed back to the soil like they're just performing this ancient role, which is critical for for soil um, in perennial systems, they've just been doing it forever and ever, and it's just it's just our inability, it's our reductionistic approach where we sort of it's easier to demonize things. We don't understand what they're doing. That we just know that they're destroying our assets, so that it's automatically bad. And I know that people are gonna despise this viewpoint but it, they are performing a really critical role like a lot of people have lost houses and that's really sad but in the wider macroorganism of our landscapes they're performing a really critical role which is to feed the soil and and we're we're all really aware of how important healthy soil is i guess yeah yeah and it's kind of you know it it starts to enter that larger conversation of like well if we're going to have uh ecologically sound settlements what does that mean in the context of things like termites or pests or floods or these sorts of things you know like how do we start to build architecture that's that assimilates that actually like enters the ecology of a space and we're not just like you know, drain the swamp and plug your deep concrete foundations, you know, well below the fucking, the tremor mm -hmm. line or whatever, you know, where, like, well, you know, if if we're in a flood area, you, you're going to have to raise your houses 
off off the off the ground and it's probably a good idea to build them out of something like bamboo because it's kind of pest and bacteria resistant fungi resistant it's not going to rot super easily mm. and then it's kind of you know don't build on the side of a river build on the hillsides just near it so that you're less likely for those floods to occur and then if you're in areas where things tend to come down the mountains you know like you then have to adapt to that but it's kind of relative to to the ecological context we have to be willing to like i think tyson young Porter has a thing of like uh, uh, you can move with the earth or the earth will move you mm. and like you know we can either learn learn to adapt like us western first world colonizer whatever who don't really know what we're doing on the planet which is why we tend to try to control everything and fuck it all up we're the ones that need to learn how to re-enter ecology and environment and become something that's not just a i don't know some imposition you know like we're always just imposing things and taking and ruining stuff where that where that irritated kid in class who just starts like pulling hair and throwing mm. shit. Like what do you like you need a you need a fucking job. What's your like you need a thing to do? And like we don't know what we're supposed to do, so we keep fucking it up. And I think like as we're like I don't I don't know that our uh, looming food shortages and the climate issues and all these sorts of things are inherently bad to put it simply i think that they're the necessary reframing of reality of our reality that like well you you're not in the space and we're quite influential on ecologies we 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 do we we make a lot of disturbance and so when we're making a lot of disturbance and we're not doing it in a way that is coherent with how systems work, we fuck it up and we fuck it up for ourselves. Mm. And so we are being told with a lot of noise and storms and all of these sorts of things, we're being told like it's time to like get back in the rhythm of things. We've The entire planet has been trying to dance with us and we're like, you know, they're doing excellent pirouettes and we're like, we're still shuffling and like supermaning and doing all this stupid fucking shit on the sidelines thinking that we're the cool kid on the block. Like you've, you're way out of rhythm. You're way mm-hmm. the fuck out of rhythm and you're stepping on everyone's toes and you're, you're changing this dance into a march and you're causing a fucking mess. And I think it's the, uh, yeah, like little things like the like the termite or larger things like the flood or, you know, kind of you can scale out from there. Um, are, are just showing us just that we're out of rhythm. We need to we need to re-enter uh, what space is telling us, what place is trying to get mm-hmm. us to understand, which is how to how to get along. Mm. it's kind of just the the larger conversation of how do we get along 
Yeah, well, uh, in especially in regards, I did a couple of natural building courses and thing that I really picked up is that in a lot of, um, in terms of rhythm, in a lot of indigenous populations, they they really, they build a house from immediately local materials and they build it to last 10 years and they build it as a community and it is specifically designed for the context of the individual that is going to live in, in that place. And it is specifically designed in celebration of that of that individual knowing that it's going to be 10 years and that in 10 years the entire village will come back and that person would have evolved and changed and they might become more senile and their ability to move in certain ways might be compromised and the next time they come back they will build another place which is going to last 10 years it's another celebration of who they are now and in terms of being in rhythm with the ecology that that structure of the one before can just be pushed over and it's immediately available to the soil biome. It's it's completely in conversation and rhythm. Um, and it's a very different perspective. Whereas where it's kind of isolated, the thought of building a house at all is overwhelming in most cases. Um, and we don't have the community that we can go, oh, I've got 30 people that can come and build me a house and they can come in every 10 years and build me that house every 10 years that is specifically designed in celebration of who I am. It's a very different, we're, we're working in very different spaces and and it is very indicative again of our detachment from our own ecology, our own ecological niche and, and the way that we can perform in the landscape. Um, and it is, I agree that it is a really exciting time. There's a lot of feedback coming from the natural world saying the way that you are performing, the way that you are moving away from your ecological niche, whether you want to be woo and be like, there's like a higher and low vibration of humankind or whatever you want to say, yeah. we're definitely not pulling our weight. Um, and it is a really beautiful moment of introspection where we can kind of stand back and, and really look at, at all of these disasters and all of this calamitous societal breakdowns and, and really analyze our relationship with each other and our relationship with the land. And, and I really feel that that's, that's an important word at the moment is relationship. I feel the kind of the story of separation is really starting to eat away at at the human consciousness and we are in a space now where we can start to form relationships um, and start to realize new ways of approaching our contexts um, whether it's in metropolitan or in 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 the case of where i'm at at the moment in in the agricultural sector um, there are some really exciting new techniques um, and really exciting when i say new techniques it's really just it's this ancient, it's really ancient ways of approaching land. Um, and uh, if you want to pivot towards that, we have like this amazing new um, plan of, a, of a, a new approach towards our particular context. Um, there's a lot of really exciting things. So essentially, there's a we alluded to it before when you said that you were writing that article about the pitfalls of organic and 
permaculture and regenerative and I myself have a pretty difficult time particularly with the tribalism within all of these modalities which are really trying to strive towards the same thing there's just for whatever reason we need to pick a side and and we don't again where there's the fear of the unknown we haven't studied all of the different ways of doing it so we kind of get stuck and we start to like hold the banner up like no no we've got the solution yeah exactly and so i get very troubled by this but we're essentially the way that i see it the way it's been described to me um is that we are creating a synergistic approach which employs a number of different paradigms but um the the two and i don't want to say major because i'm i'm already creating a hierarchy of what we're actually doing but the three schools of thought that are coming together are permaculture syntropic agroforestry which also incorporates interventional agroforestry which i can describe a little bit as well and then we're also employing a practice called holistic management which um if anyone's familiar with alan savory um uh it's essentially performs a very similar approach to uh grasslands as syntropy syntropic agroforestry is approaching forested lands so we on our property we have a combination of of grasslands prairie savanna where that's like the riparian region around the river and then our hillsides are forested and a lot of those forests are filled with invasive weeds which is definitely a controversial term in this uh conversation but where essentially our previous model was that we had a very outcomes uh based approach we had all of these outcomes that were all very disparate so we had our market garden we had the food forest we have a nursery which i i grow organic seedlings for for the market garden and a few other farms in the area um we have a a microgreens grow tent we had a mushroom tent we had chickens we had sheep and goats and we had all of these systems that were all entirely disparate from each other and they weren't connected in any way there was no there was no output informing the food for another system's input there was no way in which we were cycling nutrients there was no way in which they were connected and and even worse they were all as far away on the property as they could possibly be from each other and there was no dialogue or communication there was no overarching holistic plan that incorporated all of these elements and and informed a, a connection or a communication between all of them and essentially with the holistic management we're going to be doing uh like a holistic grazing plan and we're dividing the entire property including the food forest into a number of paddocks and then we'll be using livestock and the livestock will be moving from area to area from grassland to woodland from woodland to next woodland from woodland back to grassland and they'll become this sort of gel this glue which sort of turns the entire property into one 
big macroorganism. So rather than all these disparate systems, it becomes one entire system. And the animals, as you as you alluded to with the polyculture, they're moving through, they're providing their ecological niche. Um, they'll be used to stamp out a lot of the weed species and they'll be dropping nutrients and they'll be used to prevent erosion and their presence will then inform all of our action so before i said we just remove the we just remove the weeds and we don't address what caused the weeds as a very basic example there's a lot of lantana on the property mm. and we want to we want to create a a a lot of food for the cattle to eat so a way of addressing that is to throw lantana on top sorry to throw loosened hay onto the lantana and then to carpet underneath the lantana with heaps of seed grass seed like perennial grass seed and the cattle they'll come in and they want to get to the loosened hay so they'll be chomping at the hay and smashing to pieces all of the lantana and mm. crushing it and breaking it up into tiny pieces to be broken down quickly by the soil. And then they'll be pressing all of the, the grass seeds into the ground and they're addressing both the cause and they're also solving the problem and they're also dropping their nutrients and in passing through there they're also preventing erosion and and there are many different facilities and that's it's amazing inf it's informing us so rather than oh we've got to get rid of all of the native tobacco trees which are a problem weed we need to go in there and cut them all down in this case we're going the cattle are going to be moving through here at this time so we're going to cut the tree a week before we're going to inoculate the soil we're going to have the seed ready all of these actions all everything is becomes linked into the way that the animals move and the animals become a tool for regeneration and i don't want to like it's i'm not i don't want to terrify vegans or it's not like we're forcing them in a sense they become so enlivened and enriched by this experience of life. They want to be involved. They're curious. They want to explore. They want to eat. And they're vicariously just helping just through their ambient presence. Um, and we'll start hopefully to see this kind of linkage of all the areas on the farm that have never been linked together. We'll see the cows will start carrying the beneficial bacteria from one section into the next and will start proliferating all of these life forms and forming this intensely interconnected web of relationship that informs the entire context. And with the grasslands, we'll be slowly increasing the biodiversity and seeding crops and there's a very meticulously written grazing plan, which is very precise and mathematical and requires incredible intellect to, to decipher and create. But the practical on the ground experience is just you go down in the morning 
the cows are waiting at the gate, you open the gate and they move into the next area. Like that's a lot of the actual practical, there's no mustering or herding or anything. Yeah, um, sure. just like good fencing and then kind of you're just measuring how much time they're spending in any particular area. Yeah, and there's lots of different schools of thought with rotational grazing and cell grazing and uh, I don't know, there's so many different ones. Uh, we're looking at this holistic management because it takes the holistic approach and everything is written into it, including when it floods, how like if it, it usually floods in our area in February, at that point in time, <clears throat> the cattle just, they'll be up in the hills. Right. It's written into the plan. And also when Tommy, the guy that mows the lawns, when he goes on holiday, that's written into the plan. And when it's school holidays, that's written into the plan. And when that particular weed species starts going to seed, that's in the plan. Everything falls into this wider appreciation. All of our actions are informed by this entire plan. And we just sort of move the animals throughout the property and follow them and use their disturbance to regenerate. And we can follow them. We can start to, I guess, come into a greater relationship with the abundance that is already there. And at the moment, we have three resources. We have grass, privet, and African olive. Um, privet and African olive are pretty invasive. And then we have grass. And essentially, they're our inputs. That's what's locally available. That is they're the, that's the biomass that we have. And in terms of the privet and the African olive, we will be using interventional agroforestry methods where we come in, we cut it down, we create these uh, piles and we inoculate it with um, mycelium that will break down a lot of those species and create fruiting mushrooms. So we're converting privet into a valuable crop. Um, nice. We're also following through where we have, we can plant pear trees and pecan and we can start to diversify that forest system with productive species. We can start attracting a lot more fauna into the area and we can, we can create swale lines or contour lines and plant cucumbers in the forest or other vegetable crops. And all of this will be informed. We'll know that the cattle won't be in this area for six months. So this is the area that we're going to be growing these crops in for now and we have this time to to action out a plan and and to convert these weed species into species that are actually of value to humans or have some kind of productive yields um, and it becomes this sort of syntropic slow moving master like master macroorganism that's linked by all of our actions and all of the organisms that we have at play on the property. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. That's that's very cool. I uh, I've been I've been looking really heavily into camels recently. Mm. They're like in like particular parts of Australia, they're a, they're a bit of a pest, and farmers have to shoot them and stuff and people have been looking at like different ways that they can essentially make use of the camel 
uh, without just killing them or whatever. And so, like, sometimes just selling them as pets or whatever. But I was, I was reading uh, Ivan Illich. I don't know if you've read any Ivan Illich. No. Excellent shit. He's got he's got this book called Energy and Equity, and looking at essentially the social breakdown of of different societies and civilizations when they when they reach a certain energy quota so like the amount of energy that we use eventually starts to isolate us so like the u.s uses uh i think it's like 45 percent of the amount of uh, energy that the US uses is on transportation and a whole bunch of that is in traffic is spent in traffic and so the US uses for 250 million people the same amount of energy that 1.2 billion Indian and Chinese people like this was back in the 60s or whatever mm-hmm. the same amount of energy that they use for all of their stuff was used by the u.s just in traffic um anyway like just really it's like he just breaks everything down really well and he just had this throwaway line he's like uh typically speaking um animals uh out compete people for food production in terms of how much food they eat he's like unless uh, they're a thistle eater like donkeys and camels. Mm. Um, what are you talking about, Ivan Illich? What the fuck are you on about here? So, like, donkeys and camels, as well as goats and other certain things, they they eat weeds. They eat the spiky, thorny mm. weeds. So they'll go in there and they'll munch them and they've got big, strong, powerful mouths and jaws. And so, like, some people have been using camels as weed management in certain certain areas, like blackberries and things like that. Mm. But one of the things that camels do, so people have noticed that having camels with cattle, there's a bacteria that the camel gives to the cattle that allows cows to break down woody material better. Mm. So they can then eat... Probably things like lantana and like kind of like you know like the softer woody sort of things, but it like the the camel comes in like hey I'm I'm just I'm gonna teach your body how to break down this extra food. I'm from the desert. There's not a lot of things going on there. We've learned how to eat just about everything here. Let me teach your stomach how to eat this shit. I just found it like just wow. amazing. I'm like why the fuck aren't camels everywhere? What an amazing creature comes in teaches your cattle how to eat more things mm. it's got soft pads so it doesn't stamp down your your soil like the like the cattle does holds all its own water it'll carry 500 you, you can ride a camel anywhere you go they can sprint they'll go for 12 hours and they eat thistles they're amazing they're amazing yeah. I'm, I'm getting a little bit obsessed with camels i think i'm gonna have to sell my van and get a camel <laughs> but but the point being that they can they can like teach cows how to eat wood mm. material i'm like that's that's such a cool thing but it's that it's that polyculture thinking it's like well what if we have 
these things that would otherwise essentially never interact mm. thanks to globalization and uh, British slave trading and all that sort of the stuff. We've just swapped everything around the globe. Like we were doing it anyway on smaller scales, you know, like we've been moving bananas everywhere and cassava and sweet potato. We've been moving those all around the planet, rice, things like that, cows. Mm. And now it's just everything is everywhere. And there are like interactions and relationships that occur between organisms that didn't otherwise interact. Um, And yeah, it's interesting just to kind of like what occurs when you have these things there. Because you like the Australian landscape hasn't had cattle and chickens and goats and camels and oak and all these different things, but kind of what does happen when you're working with them and acacias and prickly pears or Davidson plums or, you know, kind of like all, all of these other things that are kind of already there, how can we incorporate all of these things into systems and not, uh, you know, like that's kind of, and I'm definitely getting off on a total tangent, but, listening to Bioakamalafe today and he was talking about um, decolonization and kind of essentially how the idea of decolonization has been colonized. And so he's like, uh, one of the things that colonization does is it removes potential. So something that we can do to like re-indigenize or to just kind of get, get, underneath colonization is to add potential back to a back to whatever it is whether it's a task or a landscape or anything like that and rather than thinking in terms of like oh well we we need native plants here because that's what was here before the the colonizers got here it's like well we're in a different space now what if along with the natives we now utilize these these immigrants, these migrants, they're they're hardworking migrants. They're happy to do the thing that you're hoping all of these natives that, you know, like may, maybe those natives, they want to go somewhere else or maybe they're, they want to take a back seat, you know, and they're like, ah, oh, fuck it, let the dandelion do it or let the, let the, um, let the Fajoa do the nitrogen fixation, you know, like maybe the acacias want to take a bit of a break or whatever, but kind of like allowing that, uh, 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 like uh, available potential to actually elaborate, not, Mm. not uh, cutting it down and removing it because it doesn't fit our purest notion of what it is to be, native or traditional or any of these these things um yeah anyway i, de- I definitely derailed somewhat there because i uh, no, 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 but i'm very intrigued in this area and there's like a lot of things to unpack like there's a lot of things to unpack with what we can see and what we can't see in the landscape and um the, the reality the reality is is that not only did we bring different animals and and 
plant species into the country, but we also have brought an unfathomable amount of bacteria and macro and microorganisms that it will, we will never remove them. Mm. There's just no way. We the all of we brought so many earthworms. I think this is little known, but we there are so many species of earthworm that we brought into into the Australian soil that and we're never going to get rid of them. And there's so many species of of fungi and bacteria that are here and they're here to stay. And they have they have hundreds of thousands of years worth of relationships with with the plants that we brought. And they're already in in consort. They're already together. They're already in communion and removing the plant species is not going to remove the bacteria and the earthworms and all of the things that we can't see. Like we can maybe look at the landscape from afar and say, look, we removed all of the invasive species, but we haven't, we, we just, it's simply impossible. Yeah. Like we've kind of just taken the head off the plant and been like, look, it's dead now. Like, yeah. Nah, it's, there's so much going on still. And and maybe I romanticize things a little bit, but I, I really believe that um, multiculturalism is where humanity thrives. It's with that, the shared ideas and knowledge and, and wisdom and, and, uh, and when we communicate those things together, we ultimately become stronger, more resilient people. And I feel like that's really mirrored in a lot of in a lot of the landscape and as you said a lot of the potential that occurs when when multicultural species come together the kind of idea that almost every indigenous language is devoid of the word weed and invasive like they would have just welcomed it with open arms and seen how it integrated and communicated and also this kind of i don't really i feel like the scent sentimentality is a very human urge i'm not really sure if if ecologies if the rest of the natural world is necessarily sentimental of these foregone eras and times i feel like it's moving with what it has and it's incorporating and it's listening and and communicating with the changing dynamic and our need to like hold things at a point that we are sentimental of is not the way that that ecologies move. They're in the now, in the present. Um, I remember <clears throat> as a slight tangent to that, my auntie came around to my house and I have a food forest at home and she came down and she's like, oh, you've got acacia and eucalypts growing here. Why are they growing? And I'm like, oh, well, they're pioneer species and they're supporting the proliferation of all the soil and eventually I'll cut them down and they won't be here anymore. And she's like, oh, that's where you should have started. You should have said that this is going to change over time. <laughs> and it just, it dawned on me, like, just the level that of where people are at, like, um, yeah. The, the idea, like, when you go to the forest, that it's this static entity that is always the same. And and the reality is, is that, like, the more that I move into it, I feel like forest is not a noun at all. It's 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 a verb. 
um yeah it's yeah, an amazing yeah. dynamic process and so is the land like the land as a whole is is it's landing it's it's yeah. in a constant state of flow it's in a constant dynamic every time i have a small food forest at home um it's probably the size of a suburban backyard and um every time that i move into that food forest there is there are changes like the more that i interface and interact with it the more that i see the subtleties the more i come across these really amazing predator insects i've never seen like i just saw an assassin beetle yesterday i've never seen one on the property before and it's moved into the system i see snakes and and blue tongue lizards and things are flowering and things are dying and things are moving it's it's just it is never the same from day to day and uh trying to hold the australian landscape in this unrealistic stillness of yesteryear is just uh it's it's not possible it's not plausible and it doesn't service it doesn't service the land in any way and unfortunately there's a level of cultural amnesia that we we're not aware of what our I'm speaking as a white person of what our forefathers did to the land when they arrived. We just we got here, we released millions of sheep and cattle into the land with no fences. We just let them go. Yeah. And there was a massive uh well essentially they killed there was a huge extinction event. They moved into the forest and they removed all of the low-lying shrubs in the forest. They removed all of that ecological niche um, and they overgrazed that area. And who knows, there are so many untold species that we'll never discover in science because they were removed in that moment. And, um, and now we have lantana and we have blackberry and we're unaware of our own previous exchanges and how we uh, moved into the landscape and, and what happened in that moment. And now we have all these problems with low-lying shrubs like lantana and blackberry. Well, it's like the ecology is desperate for something to fulfill that ecological niche. We removed it unwittingly 100, 200 years ago. We didn't know that we were doing it. And now we have this new thing that we have this new problem but the ecology is maintaining itself it is providing itself with what it needs and it's proliferating the things and if we're not addressing that if we're not bringing in the seed of yesteryear and and creating the space removing the lantana and then planting the seed for the things that we would like to grow then it's just going to be this this conversation that just proliferates itself over and over again into eternity we're not we're just not we're not there we're not present every day and we're not there to see the changes and we're not there to see the relationships and to gain the feedback and we're also not aware of who we were in the past um, and we just have this convenient amnesia of what actually occurred um, and there are lots of different things. Um, it's impossible to return to the past. And, and um, 
I don't really know what to say. I get, I, I do get quite emotional about this um, because these are naturally occurring processes. And to go back to our own human ecological niche, who knows if this is part of our role is to move into areas and to bring biodiversity and to create these abundant potential new ecosystems and new ecologies and to proliferate. Um, maybe that is part of what we do as humans is to be agents of disturbance, but also agents of syntropy in some way. Um, mm. We're not questioning what our role is because we're detached from our ecological niche. Uh, we're detached from the natural environment and we're detached from our relationship and our actions and, and how they affect things. Um, there's so many layers of complexity and really what it comes down to is us demonizing all of the other entities and then we're never pointing at ourselves. And and most of the time it's it's not the organism that is the problem, it's 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 our it's our management, it's our relationship. And that's never called into question because that's where it becomes uncomfortable that we've actually done something wrong. Um, it's very easy to point the blame at, at all the other things in the landscape and say, you guys, you're all wrong and you're affecting us and our ability to live on this land. Um, it's a very interesting conversation, man. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm rather encouraged by things like, um, I don't know if you've, if you're familiar, but, um, there's a, a farming family called the Haggerty's and they're over in, they've got a farm in South Australia and then they've got one in WA, Ian and Diane Haggerty. And they, they started, they graze cattle. They've got like 10,000 hectares over in WA and they were grazing cattle. They're right near salt flats. Like it's a fucking shitty but it's like Mars over where they're where they've got their sheep. And they've just kind of slowly noticed over the last few years that their their grass crops, the wheat crops that they were sowing, just they weren't taking the same way. They were just they weren't producing enough food to feed the sheep. So they started they would uh, they would dredge their seeds in vermiliquid and then they'd sow them and then they'd spray uh, compost extract uh, over them rather than water them in. They'd just water them in with compost extract. And they found that in the off-season when the annual grasses had been eaten or died off, a bunch of native perennial grasses that were considered extinct by the department of agriculture started to come back in the area mm. so just by adding a little bit of additional microbial activity to the seeds with the vermiliquid and then adding some good microbial shit with the compost extract they essentially regenerated their 10,000 hectare block and invited the necessary environmental situation where an, an extinct grass came back. 
Mm. So I think, like, at least in terms of some of the things that were fucked over and removed by ill management by our folly ancestors, I think some of these things can be corrected, can be righted in that same syntropic uh, 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 movement of just adding more life, just add more life. Like uh, Dr. Dr. John Todd has a, um, he's a, he builds living machines, he calls them. And he has a thing of like, just add more life, just like life will keep doing its thing. Like no matter the problem, life will fix it. Jerry Gillespie's teacher had the same thing as like, uh, uh, if you've got enough biology, it will take care of any problem. And I think like we get we get stuck in the West. We're like, oh, there's only, you know, at, at a certain point, we're going to need our fucking robots and our machines to fix the problems because our biology doesn't do it. We're going to need our carbon sucking machines and we're going to need all, all of these things completely disregarding that the only thing that was here for the majority of history was bacteria and fungi and virus. They've been dealing with things. They they were the first inventor of the solar panel. They were the first inventor of, you know, pulling certain, you know, uh, uh, whatever molecular things apart and getting the nitrogen and getting the oxygen. And they were the ones that started to dissolve the rocks and They've overcome literally everything to make this from a barren, fucked up rock to the living, beautiful garden that it is more so a while ago. But it can, again, be that beautiful, vital place where everything is is living again. But there's a really dominant culture that doesn't have a good relationship with life. And I think a lot of it, this is definitely a tangent. We don't have to go there. But, like, we don't have a good relationship with death. And so I think that life confuses the fuck out of us. We get scared that we're going to lose it. And so we kind of do a bunch of things that make it worse. Anyway, the point being that if we can prioritise life and just just adding more life no matter the situation your problem is you don't have enough life there you need more plants you need more diversity you need more bacteria more fungi you need more of these things you don't need to add minerals to an environment soil is mineral it's all just rock and for the mm. most part, your minerals are covered. What you need are the bacteria and fungi that make that shit bioavailable for the plants and other organisms that are going to use it. Sunlight, it's fucking super available. But what you need is the plant organism to make that sunlight available to the microbes mm -hmm. because plants have a better solar panel than, a, than bacteria do. The bacteria are like, no, nah, we prefer to be covered we get blanched, we get burnt out very easily. So the plants then become the solar panel organ of the soil, you know, system. But mm -hmm. uh, I think it's just the, yeah, like I get, I get really encouraged by certain, certain things where you're like, well, we thought, we thought these grasses were dead. Like we thought they were extinct and, 
you just add a bit of compost and some worm shit to your fields and suddenly this extinct grass comes back mm. um, yeah just like the 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 ability for life to overcome uh trouble is it's mm. not you know like it's it's the reason that this place is what it is mm. well like there's a lot of trouble on the horizon and it's really interesting uh in terms of adding more and more life uh i can see two ways in which agroforestry is responding to the troubles that are on the horizon and it depends how apocalyptic you want to go um but in terms of adding more life and more biodiversity there are two really interesting emerging sort of ethoses that are coming uh into into my world and and the first is is going back to that indigenous ancestor who was so inextricably and intimately connected to their landscape and they 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 weren't i guess looking at the land as a resource base from which to extract they were looking at it as a living thing in which they were engaged in a relationship with and within that relationship they weren't just they weren't just eating which is where i feel like there's a limitation that we're already creating with the term food forest which mm. is a really sexy idea and there's nice alliteration and it rolls off the tongue yeah. but it doesn't just stop at food because in adding more life and more biodiversity we're also coming into a into this communion with the land and we're also understanding that plants are are available there and, and they're they're able to not only provide food but they're they're able to provide herbs and a lot of herbs are medicinal in nature there's a lot of medicinal species there are a lot of species which are able to provide weaving for cordage and basketry and uh the basic building materials for thatching for cloth for dyeing cloth there are lots of psychoactive plants there are plants that are uh really great ceremonially or ritually there are plants that are great um for skin care there are plants that are great for a whole suite and range of the faculties which provide a healthy human existence and yeah that biodiversity we can kind of piggyback on the biodiversity and create these micro systems which are abundant and are interrelating in all the ways that we've discussed so far and are multicultural and stem from all over the world and they are engaged in a relationship there's so much symbiosis there's so much connectivity between all of those organisms and there's so much trade but also as a happy accident there are also so many different things in which we can engage with that land and and with that with that forest perennial system and it, it can engage with us in so many ways beyond food so that's one way in which we're responding with agroforestry that's what i'm doing personally in my personal system is analyzing in an apocalyptic way 
there are species within my food forest at home which will ultimately provide timber, will ultimately provide kindling for the fire and all of the other things that I mentioned. And the other way in which these systems are forming some resilience is that we can grow a lot of our stable carbohydrates. And that's what we're seeing a lot of these, like one way in which these systems are able to adapt and be resilient in the face of oncoming, uncom uh, upcoming crises is that we can grow a lot of uh, a lot of those crops that we've already alluded to. So we have the bananas, the taros, the potato, the pumpkins. We can craft our system around those stable carbohydrates. It doesn't matter really what happens economically. People are always going to buy stable carbohydrates, staple carbohydrates. They're always going to buy potato, banana, and pumpkin. And you can craft your. It doesn't system. matter how popular the keto diet gets, but we're always exactly. going to have our, have our stable carb carbs. Yeah. No one's gonna. No one's gonna buy a twelve dollar bunch of kale. <laughs> Everyone's going to buy twenty five dollars worth of potatoes in whatever apocalyptic landscape that we find ourselves in. Yeah. So. That's very. There's a way of designing these systems to service. Even now, like everyone's buying taro and cassava and potato and sweet potato and, and pumpkin, and everyone's using those to inform the kind of core of a lot of their meals. And, and that's not going to change really in any economic situation. People are still going to continue to do that. So rather than focusing on these really bizarre exotic species you can create a production plan around servicing those staple carbohydrates and then piggybacking off that ecology you can then start inserting all of the other species that i alluded to all of those other functions that are required within humanity beyond the basic needs of survival food which is carbohydrate beyond that we can have all of these other species that are involved which perform all of these other functions for human existence and just adding adding life so i'm trying to pull them together but essentially from a con commercialized conventional agricultural mindset that's that's one application of food forestry is growing these incredibly resilient systems that are filled with redundancies but also service a lot of those staple carbohydrates mm. and then in a more apocalyptic personal setting i am incorporating all kinds of medicinals and all kinds of other plants that are essential in an upcoming future that have that provide for all of the needs not just food um, and I, I can see that in the landscape as well in the agricultural landscape people diversifying their crops and starting to think maybe maybe there are other plants that can service other human needs outside of food um yeah. it's an interesting there is an interesting uh mix of things that are occurring and i feel like the melting pot of agroforestry which is really broad there are lots of different ways of of practicing agroforestry even just having some cattle with some pear trees in the paddock that that is a form of silver pasture that's a form of agroforestry 
there are lots of ways in which they combine and, and why not create these localized systems within the neighborhood that have all of these species in them that provide for all of the different needs. Um, there's a, there's a like a little melting pot there, I feel, in, in agroforestry that can service a lot of needs of humanity in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting, you know, like you've got like in uh, you know, poorer countries or whatever, I, I, I don't actually want that to be a denigrating term. I kind of want that to be a term of endearment, mm -hmm. like poorer countries. Like they, you know, you've got your you've got your township and there's just chickens and goats and cows and shit and they're just wandering around and then kind mm. of, you know, you've got your houses and then surrounding the houses are a bunch of fruit trees and things like that and then kind of beyond that you've got you've got your you know your things that maybe provide a bit of fruit food every now and then but for the most part they're dropping limbs and it's you know it's kindling or it's firewood and kind of you have these systems where it's like within a very short amount of space you've got all of the things necessary for survival in this area just around you like just by virtue of these are the plants that we have preferenced and so we we don't necessarily plant them there but as they're coming up we might clear around them or we might you know uh in a more animistic culture, we might like do ceremonies of like welcoming them to the space or like offering things to the spirits of the area. And all of these offerings just also happen to be like in a materialistic sense, we're feeding things, we're feeding the animals, we're feeding the bugs, we're feeding the microbes, whatever it is. But we're working in this polyculture system. And it's just something that in poor mainly kind of like within the the subtropical tropical region because it's just the best place to grow shit you have indigenous cultures that that they don't work they don't need to spend mm. four to ten hours a day doing their shit it's like no no like an hour and a half a day and I've got food for everyone in mm. in the town. You know, as soon as I get back, I'm the most popular motherfucker. <laughs> and we're just going to have a feast. And then we're probably all just going to nap and, like, maybe have some sex. And then later on, we're going to have a shit hot fire. And someone's gone out to go catch a bull or a pig or whatever it is. And then we're going to eat that. And then we're, <laughs> we're going to sleep and tell stories. Like it, it's kind of you work these things out well, and um, suddenly it 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 makes it makes what we're doing in the first world look really fucking dumb. Mm. The, the the amount that we work, and for a bullshit mortgage, when you know you get the community together, and within a week you build a house, and it lasts you ten years. That's that's plenty of time. That's that's enough time to then slowly gather the the necessary resources to maybe build your next house. But you probably won't need to. Who knows? You might get fucking eaten in the meantime. And wouldn't that be nice to mm. know that you don't you don't have to just die at eighty 
maybe along the way you'll get eaten by a fucking tiger and you'll feed the system. You'll just, you'll recirculate back into the larger system, you know? I don't know, I just feel like the a lot of the things that we've done in the West and a lot of the way that we propagandize our system to make it, you know, like progress, the, the myth of progress, that this is, we are the shit and everything has been tending toward getting better. Um, I think we've just done a really good job of convincing ourselves that we we would prefer to not work so much and eat better food and spend more time with our family and have more sex and sit around a fire telling stories. We've somehow convinced ourselves that that's not the better thing to do. Mm. And so, like, I feel like these agroforestry systems, you know, like if we could incorporate them with intentional communities and some kind of shared spiritual practice, because it seems like faith, uh, faith communities tend to be much more resilient during hard times. And when it, when we look at uh, uh, communal groups and communities and intentional communities, it's been the faith-based ones, the ones that have a shared faith, they last. The ones that don't have that, they tend not to last. So if we can incorporate agroforestry with some kind of animistic, ecumenical, spiritual practice that's kind of willing to share things of of a spiritual nature but in a way that isn't just like a new age like well oh, whatever goes goes and you just get your charming leaders who are just trying to fuck everybody's girlfriend or fuck everybody's husband whatever the situation might be and if we can also then like have the shared resources and shared finances and things like this we can essentially like we just we then don't have to do all of the other stupid shit. We don't have to worry about going to Mars. We don't have to worry about being transhumanist downloaded into a computer. Mm. We don't have to worry about all of these unnecessary things. We don't have to worry about entropy. We suddenly mm. can like just remove ourselves from the entropic process. Um yeah, I'm de- I'm definitely definitely ranting. We're at like two hours and a bit, and I'm definitely I'm I'm a few wines deep. And, uh, <laughs> I'm de- I, uh, yeah, you you've been wonderfully uh, coherent through this whole thing and able to say quite a lot. And I feel like I keep derailing very very well. I'm a real I'm really good at derailing things this evening with my drunk trickster energies people people like i love where you're going i feel like people aren't like we met during a permaculture design course and everyone was very quickly enlivened and everyone's eyebrows were raised but as soon as it was suggested that you might need to to take a shit into a bucket like people detuned very quickly (laughs) i feel like I feel like the paradigm that you've just suggested might involve shitting into a bucket. There's and, lots of buckets. Um, and sometimes there's no bucket. It's a hole. It's just it's a, a hole. hole next to a tree. Yeah. It's a hole. It's someone else's hand. And then they're then they're putting <laughs> it into the ecology. Um, people aren't prepared. I, yeah. 
like the reality of it is um is living with the land and i feel like that as part of our propaganda machine has also been to completely demoralize any kind of connection to to the land and the savagery of that and and uh, the terror the terror of sleeping on the ground is overwhelming and it's all consuming yeah. um, and and the sterilization the the need I, I I watched a person at a restaurant the other day just sterilize their entire face and their arms like up to their shoulder wow. and they weren't able to consume their meal until all of the biology had been completely destroyed and oh, then they were ready to eat and um i really worry about these these individuals in this kind of emerging context of returning returning to the land whether they want to or not they, they may well have to and um and it's quite worrying to it's quite worrying to consider <laughs> as much as i want this to happen i think there's a lot of people out there who are just they don't have the inbuilt resilience to yeah, there's to a lot of people that they're not they're not coded for this kind of uh, existence yeah right. i was talking I was, I was talking to a friend recently and she was like <laughs> she was <laughs> like romanticizing the idea of like you know i'll be there in my nice dress and i'll be like churning the milk that's been freshly uh, you know taken from the cow and blah, da, 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 da. and then i'm like yeah but it's your only nice dress and you better not fucking get it dirty because you might not be able to like build and you might not be able to sew another one. It's your only mm. nice thing. Don't fucking get it filthy with your with your milk mm. and butter. And she's like, oh my god, it's my only nice dress. Holy shit! <laughs> it's just there's this thing of like, yeah, you're right. I'm totally romanticizing a certain part of it, like seeing myself in this situation. And then it's a reality of like, you've got very few resources. You can't just go out and buy a new thing. You have to make, you have to grow it and then you have to process it and make it all yourself or in your community. You know, like this, this way of life is not easier. It's not an easier thing to do. Mm. I just think that it's probably a lot more fun and it could be easier. Like it's just that I think that if we're, if we're heavily relying on like grain food and we're heavily relying on our wonderful flamboyant threads, then it gets really difficult to maintain those things. Mm. Uh, but if we're kind of, if we're if we're more deeply embedded into the localized context, um, I think maybe we're less prone to doing things that take ex exorbitant amounts of energy and time. And we're like, look, this will do. This will do absolutely fine. You don't need a whole thing, you know. Or like, mm -hmm. you know, you're in a warm environment. Put on a fucking loincloth. That's all. That's all you're gonna need. Go for a jog if you're getting cold. Well, we seem to we seem to have trained ourselves away from the ability to think collectively in that 
and that goes back to that word relationship this the idea of returning to a to a community of people with 50 50 people that you're intimately engaged with and and the ability to to say we have 50 potatoes is mm. is lost on a lot of us we we can only say i have 50 potatoes like that right. is a is a skill and and i feel like that's going to take a few generations to get our head around into thinking on behalf of the of the collective we've become very good at thinking on behalf of the individual and what our individual needs are um and, say, and that's like, going to be interesting that's it like re, re, rebuilding the the village mind it's gonna it's gonna take a little bit of time it's not it's not natural to most of us like even if we can speak in that shared way or you know doing like a Tyson Yonka Porter talks about things like us two as like a like a part of your your speech like it's not it's not me and you it's us two it's kind of mm -hmm. it's like immediately inclusive it's like even if we're doing that kind of a thing there is still that that impulse to accumulate and you know like well, if I've got enough surplus, if I've got enough of a storehouse full, then I can start to share it. Mm. Like we, we're, we're not familiar with the, um, uh, I think it's like a, an African quote um, of like, a, the best place to store excess food is in the belly of your brother. And mm. we're not we're not familiar with things like that. We're we're more like the best place to store excess food is in my fridge or mm. in the cellar. Uh and if you want some, you can ask very politely and maybe I'll give you some, but probably not because it's fucking mine and back off. I'll fucking I'll stab you if you come if you come close to my <laughs> if you come close to my pork sausages, they're fucking mine. Back off. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's gonna, it's, it's gonna take a while. It's gonna take, and you know, like maybe we will adapt quickly, but it, it will take a very serious situation before we're able to mm. head in that direction. It'll, it'll take massive food shortages, and it'll take the, the disintegration of our, uh, of our, uh, Leviathan supply chains um you know like you had in cuba you had the special period kind of they they couldn't get in external energy and so you know the government for quite a while maintained their rigid form of doing things they they kept doing their supply chains the way they had done and eventually they had to start relinquishing control and then things got rapidly better they regrew a bunch of their forests and they regenerated their soils and their cities and suburbs turned into places that grew food and they everyone learned how to repair and restore things and they had to get along because they had they that they couldn't externalize that that thing you couldn't you couldn't replace community with money and like we don't need each other in the west in the in the affluent West first world, we don't need each other. I can buy the services that I would otherwise need to build a relationship with you in order to 
to have in my life. I can pay for someone to look after my children. I can pay for someone to grow my food. I don't need to know you. I don't need to know. I don't need to build these things. I can I, I can fucking build my fence, cut myself off, and just ship everything in as though I've got this private little empire. And once the money flow stops, once that once that thing kind of stops working so well, then we suddenly need each other. And it's either we have, either we start to communicate well or we eat each other. Mm. And I'd, I don't think people are going to taste all that good. Mm. Well, it's interesting to hear Tyson Yonkapora say the thousand year cleanup. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's also interesting to even, um, David Holmgren is very um, he's very pessimistic about a nice smooth transition into a, into the world that we would love to see. Like I, it's very um, it's very challenging to consider how much violence will ensue in some kind of apocalyptic setting. Um, the level of resistance that people will have to assimilating into a new a new consciousness into a new a new way of life um a lot of our heroes like as much as we want to see this lovely sort of system with an agroforest and some pigs running in the bush um yeah there's probably a very high chance that it's not going to go that well and we're going to have to violently consume each other until we <laughs> yeah we might we might have to eat a few of our neighbors best <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck yeah. is that a good point to uh, end on man <laughs> that's a perfect point to end on <laughs> oh shit uh, and in conclusion, we might have to eat each other. <laughs> Good luck. Sharpen your blades. Get ready. The storm is a coming. <laughs> Emergency response and preparedness, man. That's right. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being willing to... Uh, uh, co-inhabit this rather strange and eclectic conversation with me. We travelled far. Uh, yeah, bro. Um, and a lot of the things that I talked about in the context that we're exploring, uh, we're in the we're very much in the genesis stage. And I I myself felt like I was uh, rambling a little bit, and I'm really. I'm really engaged with our little, like our little context that's going on and it's going to evolve in a really beautiful way. And I would love to drop in and update you and to be able to share if it is a really good way of responding to the emergency and, and the crises that we're facing in our, in our little context. Um, so like I'm really glad to be here to talk about it, and also I'd I'd be really glad to come back and and continue to update you on on the progress and to share how it's going as well. Excellent. Yeah. Well, like maybe 
maybe after this Indian dipole passes, we can at least just see if you guys are still standing. Yeah. And, um, you know, see see what didn't make it, see what did make it, see if there was, you know, see if there was anything that kind of came out of how you shifted uh, that survived well and maybe some things that didn't didn't quite do so well. But, yeah, I would definitely love to extend this conversation and, and do it again. And cool. even off the recording, we'll just, we'll just catch up and yeah, man. chat and just keep yeah. Just keep these lines of communication going. Yeah. Beautiful. I hope that you eat the neighbors first and they don't <laughs> eat you. Like you're pretty big, you know, like that. <laughs> it's it's, it's going to take a few of them. It's going to take a few of them to uh, take you down. I I really hope in the, in the changing paradigm, like at the moment we've been valuing people who are super able to destroy as much of the environment as possible. And um, I'm really hoping, I'm probably having my own bias here, but I'm hoping that in the future paradigm, we're valuing people who are able to add abundance and life to the land rather than extract in the way that we have been. So that's uh, that's where I'm sitting. And uh, I'm hoping that I won't be killed and eaten because I might be able to provide a service. <laughs> Amen to that, brother. <laughs> I definitely hope you are not killed and eaten. <laughs> Unless it's by some kind of predator animal, you know. Yes. I'm okay. I'm okay if yeah. you're eaten by by a gang of gang of dingoes or like some wild savage geese. I'm okay <laughs> with that. But people, no, 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 no. They don't. There's better meat. <laughs> Right, All right. Well, thanks, brother. Enjoy the rest of your evening, even though it's fucking it's it's very late. It's getting there. Um, yeah. Be well. Enjoy your Sunday, and I'll talk to you real soon. Lovely. Thanks, brother. Excellent. Good talking, yes. my man. Bye.